Well, good morning and welcome again to West County Presbyterian Church. If you're a visitor here this morning, my name is Pastor Jordan, and we are delighted that you've decided to uh, spend your Sunday morning with us in our worship service. And before we get into our scripture this morning, I just wanted to remind us, all of our service is informed by scripture. So our call to worship is scripturally informed, our confession of sin is scripturally informed, of course our sermon, and that often means that we are reading sometimes blocks of Bible passages. And if you are, if your initial response is to be like, wow, this is a lot, I just want to say it's probably the only scripture reading many people are being exposed to all week long. And so for us, it's not a thoughtless thing, like, oh, I guess we should have made that scripture shorter. It's, a very, it's an intentional thing, because we realize that um, it's, it's amazing in the day and age we live in, this information age, where we all have access to all of the world's information, including the Bible, and many of us have multiple Bible apps, but very few people actually open up the Bible and read. And so for us, we want everything we do to be informed by Scripture because we believe it's God's Word. Um, yes, it's a book written by human beings, but it is also a book that is inspired by the very Spirit of God. And so, um, so we're, we're just one of those churches. We believe in the Bible. So our Scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 25, and it is kind of a chunky passage, and I will uh, read through. So uh, hear the Word of God. For it, the kingdom, that is, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away, and he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, the talents that is, and he made five talents more. So he doubled. Those also... He who had, so also, he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Just as a sidebar, a talent was about 60 pounds of silver which is about 10 years' worth of wages. So this is, these are exorbitant amount, amounts of money. It would be the modern equivalent of a talent being about $5 million, or I mean, a, a five talents being about $5 million today. Um, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. These are big sums. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. That's surprising. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master had answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, lazy that is, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received 
what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast that worthless servant into outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Father, now we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds that we might um, understand the word of God and that we might be transformed through our message this morning. We pray that we would leave differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we went through our stewardship series uh, a little while ago, and we talked about stewarding our time and our talents and our treasures. And um, in that series, the second sermon, which was about our talents or our gifts, we talked a little bit about the gifts and abilities and capabilities God has given us and stewarding those things faithfully, and we scratched just a little bit on the idea of vocation and our jobs but we, we didn't get too deep into that. And it's the idea, of course, that, that faithfully stewarding the abilities and capabilities God has given us often finds its expression in our vocations and our jobs, and beyond that also as well. Um, but uh, it's only fitting that our scripture, our, excuse me, our sermon series this morning, which is our faith being for the life of the world, it's fitting that we talk about work. In other words, if not only our faith, but our work, that the work God gives us to do, is also for the life of the world, and we're answering the question, why are we here in the first place? Um, but what does that look like? What does our abilities and capabilities and even our callings and our specific you know, careers or jobs or whatever God has given us to do, what does that look like? And so the first sermon was on seeking the welfare of the city in which we live. The second was on Abraham's family as a model for all families whose purpose is to bless the world. And today we're talking about the fundamental role that work plays in God's plan for the world. Now, I grew up in a house where um, I don't know if it was the soft Marxism of the 1960s that informed my hippie parents, but I grew up being taught that work was a curse. I mean, that, that, that phrase, work is a curse, I mean, it just, it was repeated all the time in my house. And I don't know that I fully embraced it, but it was certainly kind of the air we were breathing. And I guess I grew up thinking that Adam's job in the Garden of Eden was just kind of to lounge around maybe and like take cat naps all day. And the fall in the garden forced him to have to do something that otherwise he would just, you know, We'd just be taking an easy sip on an iced tea. And like the curse of the fall forced him to have to work. That, that, was, that, was, the, that was what I grew up in um, thinking. And um, I had no real category of work other than it wasn't pleasant. And so, of course, myself and you also likely have experienced probably through the years that work can be unpleasant sometimes. And so for me, it kind of reaffirmed this idea that like work wasn't a good thing. I certainly saw no redeeming aspect of work. Work felt for many years just unpleasant. And you were happier when you weren't at work, it seemed. Uh, now in reality, um, like the rest of life, as we've been talking for the past few sermons, work 
was meant to be a gift to mankind. Uh, Our first parents were meant to cultivate the earth, to spread culture, to beautify creation, to serve others and cause human flourishing, right? When you really go back to the original story in the Garden of Eden, God creates this entire world. It's like a virgin world, pristine wilderness that has to be cultivated and tended to and cared for. And Adam and Eve are to multiply, right, and have kids and sort of spread out over the earth. And so God essentially gives the earth to the first people as kind of like a blank canvas. You can think of an artist with brushes and paint colors and a blank canvas, and God says, go for it. Right, And part of that happening is through Adam's work. He was to tend to the garden, and Eve had a role in that too. Now, most of you were taught better than I was taught, if you grew up in the church, but we we still struggle today to make sense of our work. Something else that complicates this is the modern notion of retirement. Jeff Hainan, writing for Christianity Today, says that more than 70 million baby boomers will retire in the next 20 years in the United States. But as people are living longer than ever before, retirees aren't sure what to do with all that time. So there was a a time, I suppose, when people just worked until the day they died, and when retirement really started, was introduced as a concept in the 1950s, well, people maybe, maybe retired in their mid-60s, and they were dead a couple years later. But now people are living 10, 20, 30 years after retirement. And so often retirees don't know what to do with all that time. One study found that inactivity in retirement can increase the chance of clinical depression by 40%. One big problem is the idea of retirement sort of as vacation, It's like, I worked for 40 years, and now I'm on vacation for the rest of my life. Which, according to Hanan, has led to a number of unsatisfying options for older Christians across the developed world. So this is really a first world issue, a first world problem. Margaret Mark of the ad agency Young and Rubicum interviewed retired Americans from the ages 55 to 75 across the socioeconomic spectra. They reported a love for their newfound freedom and lauded the glories of no longer having a commute, yet when asked about their overall happiness in retirement, doubts crept in. They reported a powerful sense of loneliness. I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hands, but I know we have some retired folks in our congregation, this small congregation. We have some retired people, and I bet more than a few of you have experienced a sense of loneliness since you've retired. That's actually quite normal, but it's an issue. They reported this powerful sense of loneliness, and even though they had more time for friends and family, right, you would think you've got more time to socialize and be with people than ever before, they reported that they missed the bonds that they experienced at work, you know, relationships with a purpose. Um, Mitch Anthony, author of a book called The New Retire mentality, put it this way, retirement is an illusion because those who can afford the illusion are disillusioned by it. And those who cannot afford the illusion are haunted by it. Now, don't hear me saying 
if you're retired, you've somehow done something wrong. That is not what I am saying. What I am saying is many people, now there's someone in here saying, well, I'm loving retirement. <laughs> like, praise the Lord. But there are many people who retire and find themselves disillusioned because it didn't provide that sense of kind of like constant joy and excitement maybe that they thought it would. And Hanan concludes this. He says, unless, and this is the point, this is the point to all of this, one finds a way to continue working in some form by continuing to use their gifts in creative service, you'll spend your years in retirement with a hole in your heart. So we need to understand that as much hassle as work can be, it's actually fundamental to God's plan for us. And even if you're retired, you can still live out that truth by using the gifts God has given you, the abilities God has given you, in creative service to others. The first thing I want us to see is that God gives us our work according to his plan and our ability. Matthew 25, 15, it says, to one he gave five, to another two, and to another one, each according to their own ability. Now the parable of the talents is maybe one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted parables in the New Testament. Some people say it's about prudence of financial investment, and that's certainly a theme there. Others say that it is a warning against laziness. That's certainly a theme there also. Or rather, that we should learn to stay busy. That gets closer at it. And those aren't exactly wrong, but I think that... Uh, I don't know that neither of those uh, really focuses on the main point. What's often neglected is the very first sentence. The kingdom is like a man going on a long journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. And this is a theme that I've been repeating over and over again over these last several sermons is that God created the world and entrusted it to human beings. Right? God creates this world and he says, here, I'm entrusting it to you. Be wise with it. Don't be lazy, just, you know, right? Like God says, you know, it's, it's like if, if, if someone has given you something that needs to be cared for. I think of uh, one of my kids wanted, you know, a hamster when they were young. And oh, they, they, were, just, they, they were just pleaded for the hamster, and we talked about the responsibility that would be involved, and they got the hamster, and of course, it was me and my wife that were the ones who ended up doing the feeding and the cleaning of the tank and all of those things. But the world is something that has to be cared for and cultivated, and work is one of those things that God uses. Now, I'll unpack how in just a minute. But God essentially creates the world, leaves it to human beings, and trusts to us his property. It's to be cultivated, developed. The bits about laziness and poor investment are really only the window dressing to the motif of experiencing God's joy through the fruit of our work. And here's the connection to depression and work. God never intended us just to sit around doing nothing. That was never the intention, in spite of what I was taught 
as a kid. God never created us just to sit around and do nothing. The fact that some people are able to do that is almost beside the point. There is a joy factor in us being busy about things that not only please God, but that use our creative abilities in work and service to other people that is directly connected to joy. It is directly connected to joy. There has to be some studies out there about the developing world for people who are suffering, maybe physically, or they're suffering violence, or they're suffering poverty, poverty, but I don't know that the depression levels that are here in the first world exist in that part of the world because people have to work so hard just to live, right? Like, why is it for all of our um, first world luxuries uh, that, there, that the levels of depression and sadness and loneliness are so high? In fact, they're getting higher. They're not getting lower. They're getting higher. And this is true for people of all walks of life in the, the developed world here in the United States. <clears throat> but God creates the world and he ties joy directly to work, right? The, the two servants who had worked hard and essentially had taken what God had given them and been productive and faithful over it, what does he say? He says, Enter the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. There's something fundamental about our work that reveals joy and also reveals the very character of God. Number two, God has given us our work as a way to seek his righteousness. Matthew 25, 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Work is part of what it means to live a righteous life. So it's not just, um, you know, um, you're faithful to your spouse and you don't cheat on your taxes and, you know, you don't hate your neighbor. There is something about what it means to live a righteous life that is directly connected to work. The work that we do. There is a genetic link our work is part of what it means to live a righteous life where we receive joy and we make God joyful at the product of our endeavors, the fruit of our labors. It makes God joyful. Basically, God created us to work. We're meant to make something of the world. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that like God, we're makers. We're creators. You know, just look around this auditorium for a moment. Not at each other, but the building. Think of all of the people who had to come together to make this room what it is, right? There were architects, electricians, upholsters, you know, sound technicians. There were all these different people in the construction of the, this building who had to come together to make this be what it is, and something about this collaborative effort reveals the value and relational interdependency of all human work. And here is where, here's what I really want you to pay attention to. Work unites people. No work is ever done in isolation. And this is really the bit that I think that a lot of us don't even 
think about when we think about work because we're so individualistic. We think about my work, am I doing a good job? Is God pleased with me individually? But the truth is, is that God unites people through work. God never called us to be isolated and by ourselves. And so no work is actually done in isolation. Somebody say, that's not true. I sit at my desk all day alone and nobody bothers me. But the truth is, is you can't really do what you're supposed to do unless other people are doing what they're supposed to do. And so even their work enables your work. And I think of a woodcrafter, you know, someone who's in a wood shop and they are shaping wood to make beautiful cabinetry. And they may, they may be in a workshop alone, but they're not really alone, right? The woodcrafter, he purchases his tools made by a machinist. His lumber is taken uh, from the trees by a forester and then cut in the sawmill, delivered by a trucker. And then when the woodcrafter is done, his product is sold to the wholesaler to be sold again, to go in a home and to be enjoyed. The consumer gets a product and they both profit because it's in the exchange that the value of work is created. It's not just in the money being made, but it's in that exchange, that vocational you know, interdependency where there is the exchange of goods. And there's value in that. All of our work is the result of a mysterious collaboration going on in the world. I mean, from God's perspective, if you can kind of like maybe have a, a bird's eye view from outer space, we're like an anthill or a, like a, a bee colony. You know, billions and billions of people every single day working to make the world go round and be what it is. And in the process, there are all of these cultural artifacts like skyscrapers and subways and, you know, um, a cyber network of information and markets and, and stocks and products and trucks with material. There's all of these things going on. And because often we're bogged down by our own lives, we don't see that big picture, but that's what God sees, and God is pleased with that. In fact, it's part of the reason why we're here in the first place is God wants to bless the world. This is a theme we've been hearkening on since the very beginning of this series. God wants to bless the world. Our work is one way that God blesses the world. I love the movie The Fiddler on the Roof. Tevye, the main character, who's ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Right? The main character, he's this dairy farmer who opens the movie with his theme song. Any, anyone know the theme song? What is it? Yeah, tradition. And in this little village of Anatevka, life is precarious. There are Jews living in the Russian Empire, maybe around the turn of the last century. And like a fiddler standing on the roof, the only way to keep your balance is that everyone knows their place and everybody knows what God expects of them. The butcher, the rabbi, the seamstress, the blacksmith, Everyone has a job to do. Everyone knows their place. And as they exchange their goods, right, there are conversations happening in the town square as Tevye is pouring milk and butter into people's pans and, you know, the rabbi is there and he's receiving butter and, you know, they're talking about scripture or some local gossip. But essentially, their community is built upon and strengthened by everybody contributing 
to this small little village all of their skills and abilities. And even though work is a subplot theme to the whole story, the entire movie revolves around their work, and for good reason. Now here's the problem, because I've just made work sound really flowery, but that may not always be your experience. The problem is, is that after the fall, work has come to be a lot like toil, right? It's burdensome, it's bothersome, and we don't have a sense of the whole anymore. So if you want to know why when you're working, you're not filled with some incredible sense of joy that someone halfway across the world, you know, by, you know, 28 degrees of separation is being blessed by the work you do, well, it's because of the fall. It's because of sin. It's because our hearts are bogged down in this sense of kind of isolation, and we lose a sense of the whole. We lose a sense of the purpose of it all because we're bogged down. We see ourselves caught up in an economic machine, abstract and impersonal, and so work becomes fragmented. Our work becomes fragmented. And this only perpetuates this kind of idea that you know, we live and die for ourselves and ourselves alone. Yeah, we make some friends along the way, but for the most part, all of our decisions are self-interested. Uh, and we go to work for just us and our family, and that's it. And we lose that sense of the whole because the world is fragmented. Because of the fall, we only see our work being about utility, efficiency, or productivity. And if that's all we see work as, if we fail to see the whole, we fail to see that work is actually a gift from God. And we work in fear. And the servant said in Matthew 25, 25, so I was afraid and I hid your talent in the ground. Working for God in fear shows a deep misunderstanding of God's calling. And, you know, there's stress every Monday morning for a lot of people. I was just having a conversation in the lobby with someone about Sunday night. You know, the sun, you know, you've got the weekend, but Sunday night comes, and as Monday morning is looming, you know, it's like your weekend has the potential of just being blown away, the, the joy of your weekend. Because there's stress, there's anxiety. Yes, we can say there's fear. There's some fear there. Am I going to do a good job? Am I going to lose my job today? Am I going to be productive? Am I, is it all going to fall apart, you know? My living, my livelihood is relying on this. The servant goes and hides his talent out of fear. God's called us to use our gifts in faith and to share in his joy and to seek him in our work. And this is true whether you're working or retired. God wants us to seek him and his joy and purposes through using the abilities God has given us. The remedy, number three, is knowing that seeking God through work is worship. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do heartily as for the Lord. How many have ever heard that passage before? How many of you know it's written to slaves? And Paul is telling slaves in the first century, because that was the ancient Mediterranean world, that even if you're a slave... 
Don't do your work for your master. Don't work for, for men, but do it for the Lord. Offer your work up. I mean, this is, this is, this is heavy. The idea that Paul tells slaves who have no ability to change their circumstances, even though you're a slave, God blesses and sees the work of your hands, and he honors it. And if that's true for slaves, how much more is it true for us too, right? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Even if you're a slave, your work has meaning and value and purpose, and you can work in such a way that it's an act of worship. Now, I'm not going to ask anyone here, but there's probably not a whole lot of us that view our work as worship, as an act of worship. We think like this is, this is worship, right, what we do on Sunday morning, but the truth is that all of our life, what we do seven days a week can be worship. And so I guess we've got some little ones in here. Your schoolwork, if you are diligent with your assignments, that can be worship, especially if you do it not because you think you're going to get in trouble from mommy and daddy, or mom and dad if you're in your teens, but as unto the Lord, right? The work God has given us, whether you're a kid doing an assignment at school, or whether you're on a job, or whether you're retired, is all an act of worship. In God's economy, the Greek word we talked about is oikonomia, all work can glorify God. The janitor or the lawyer, the stay-at-home parent taking care of the kids or the CEO, God calls each of us differently to accomplish our work in different ways. And whatever your unique vocation is, we work with God to discover how he wants us to use those gifts and abilities and vocations in everyday situations, at work, at home, at the church, And seeking God's righteousness in our work runs along two main avenues. First, it means doing our work as an offering to God. So we work hard, we finish tasks, we pursue excellence, and all without complaint. And this allows us to see value also in other people's work. And so the temptation we fall into is to take advantage of others sometimes. I just made a statement that that should have raised a few red flags, which is that all work can glorify God. Maybe some of you think, were thinking, all work? Right? Like, like the drug kingpin? Like his work glorifies God? Well, we have to see also, this is fourth and finally, that seeking God's righteousness through our work means we pursue justice and virtue in our work. So all work that honors God, all work that pursues justice, all work that embodies virtue, right? Colossians 3.23, right? We do it for God and not for men. Amos 5.15 says, to hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. And so the second avenue, and final, I'm going to close here, of seeking God's righteousness at work relates to how our jobs interact with justice and virtue. Our business decisions should consider things like fairness, keeping our word, and adding value to the local economy. So it's not just about the exchange of products and the exchange of profit, but it's also the idea that our work doesn't hurt others, but builds others up. 
I'm watching this funny show on, on Hulu called The Good Place. I don't know if you've heard of it, but initially it's this girl who shows up in a place that's like heaven, but she doesn't belong there, and she's just afraid they're going to find out that she doesn't really belong there, and in life she was a telemarketer, right? And she was like selling products that were just garbage, supposedly like, you know, vitamins that could, you know, cure diseases, and she said she knew she was lying. But it's just a funny thing, because even though she made a living at it in life, like, it was, like, unjust, right? Like, like not everything is just. Not every vocation and job is righteous and, 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 and treats others well. Some, some stuff's rotten and illegitimate, right, in the pursuit of making money. And so here's the command that we have is in all of our work, in all of the use of our abilities, whether you're a student in school or you're working in your career or you're retired, is that we hate evil, we love good, we establish justice, and we pursue justice and virtue in all that we do. And it doesn't matter what you do as long as those things are there. If you're a janitor or a computer programmer or an executive, God is honored. I think we probably make way too much in our culture about what people do. As a matter of fact, I've been trying for the past several years to get away from asking strangers those questions. In other parts of the world, especially the developing world, the idea that you would lead a conversation with a stranger and say, so what do you do, is actually kind of rude. In those parts of the world, you might say, tell me about your family or the area or the village you're from. The idea that you would lead with someone's kind of career accomplishments is very much an American thing. And so I'm trying more and more when I meet strangers to make that something either that I don't ask or it's the last thing that comes up. It may be just a filler, right? There's like an awkward silence, so what do you do? But it is no longer the first thing that comes out of my mouth because it tends to monetize people's worth by their job, right? It monetizes relationships. The truth is that somebody can be incredibly successful and be a horrible person and someone else can only make, you know, pocket change and be the greatest person you know, on the planet. And so in our culture of monetizing relationships, like that's not what God wants us to do. He wants us to value and dignify people for who they are and recognize there is worth and dignity regardless of what someone does for a living. So there it is. I'm done. <laughs> God can be glorified in our work regardless of what we do. And all of our work ties us together with all the rest of human beings, and God is pleased in that. That makes God happy. That makes him happy. And this is why he says, if you've worked hard like the servants with the five and the two talents, then you can enter into the joy of the Lord. Right? You've used your gifts for his glory. Enter into the joy of the Lord. I want, I want to hear that from God at the end of my days. I want to hear God say to me, Enter into the joy of the Lord. Now, here's the deal. We need God's enabling power and presence to do that in us so that we can stay focused on that very truth that we glorify God in all we do. Let's pray. Father, we are finite and fragile and failing creatures. And so we often do make decisions that are self-interested without considering the whole. Because our lives are fragmented by sin, so is our work. And so we pray now, God, that you would give us a heart and a mind to work with all of our might, whatever our hands find to do, that we would do it to the Lord. 
We would do it for your name and for your glory, and that we would seek the welfare of others all the while, not only our own interests. Help us to do this in the power of the Spirit and in the love of your Son, Jesus. Amen.